Welcome to Lost in the Wilderness, a priest and a rabbi explore Exodus. I'm Carl Stevens, I'm the priest. And I am Daniel Bogard, the rabbi. And we are back after almost a month's absence. A month, actually longer than a month for our listeners, because uh, the last recording that we did uh, itself was lost into the wilderness of uh, the internet. Yeah, that is a famous lost episode, which in years to come, true audiophiles and lovers of the show will claim that they have or have heard, but they will be yes. lying. Dear listeners. Yes. We, we actually have partial tracks, though, don't we? <laughs> yeah, we, well, we have my whole track. So, dear listeners, if you want to hear me and Daniel talk for 15 minutes and then me have a conversation with no one for another 45, you could have that. Just think. Just send us $100. Uh, but... <laughs> We are we are very sorry that we were gone for so long. Daniel, you moved. I moved. I am uh, in a different uh, time zone, a different city. Yeah, I'm in St. Louis now. Yeah, that's going to wreak havoc with our planning from now on. Um, yes, I have confidence in that. Yes, uh, but what is time, really? We've already decided that time is a construct and not worth <laughs> thinking about. Um, exactly. Rashi says there's no before or after in the podcast, I believe. That's... That, that is exactly right. Um, and I had to go on a service trip uh, down to Tennessee, but we are now back and uh, settled into our lives. And we're going to finish this year book of Exodus. Um, we're going to finish it up good and uh, then after that, we are going to rest on our laurels for a while, and then we'll start on Luke and Acts. Um, but we have six chapters left to go. We are at the very exciting chapter 34. And what, sh- what Daniel, since it's been so long, what do we need to catch our listeners up on? Where are we at, at this point in the story? So we are post-golden calf is what's going on right here. Yeah, uh, we've had the golden calf, which, uh, as a reminder to everyone, is within the Jewish tradition at least considered to be sort of the ultimate sin. Uh, that every sin that exists in the world is, in some ways, a reflection of the golden calf. Uh, I think before I said that it's the closest Judaism gets to a concept of original sin. As we we have pointed out before, it's an interesting distinction that in Christianity, original sin is individual, and in Judaism, it's communal. Yeah, 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 right. It's the original sin for the Jewish people. It is not the original human sin, is the notion. Right, right. Um, and that, to me, throughout throughout this study of Exodus has been one of the most interesting things. It's helped me focus on how individualistic my faith actually is, and it's helped me to ask questions about mm-hmm. that. Why is that? Why did it develop that way? Is it a good thing? Uh, so, should we should we leap right in, Daniel? Let's jump in. Adonai said to Moses, carve two tablets of stone like the first, and I will inscribe upon the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you shattered. I, I sort of actually imagine uh, a little bit snarkier of a verse, right? Carve two tablets of stone like the first, <laughs> which but you shattered. shattered. Yeah, exactly. Uh, as, exactly. As if all the blame is on Moses for the shattering. Mm-hmm. That doesn't quite seem fair. Uh, this, is, uh, this is God as a 15-year-old, I think. Yeah, so we, these we are going to be the eye roll. <laughs> These are going to be the replica tablets. The real tablets, like our original episode 35, were lost. Oh, very good. <laughs> See, maybe it's appropriate. That very day. good, yes. Okay, okay, so go on. Uh, be ready by morning, and in the morning come up to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. 
no one else shall come up with you and no one else shall be seen anywhere on the mountain. Neither shall the flocks and the herds graze at the foot of this mountain. So pausing for a second, because this is a totally different scene than the first go, right? Well, there's no sound of uh, orgiastic parties at the foot of the mountain at this point. Yeah, right. I mean, we, we have this Chag, this uh, um, festival that happens at the first time uh, that is just totally absent here. This is a much more serious somber. somber yeah. Yeah. Um, something is lost there. So you could say that, that one of the great tragedies of the golden calf is that they let the celebration go so wild that they kind of lost the celebratory aspect of receiving the law. Um, and yet celebrations will come back into the communal life of the Jewish people. I'm thinking of King David dancing naked into Jerusalem once it's conquered, um, in front of the Ark of the Covenant, for that matter. I, I actually have a similar story myself from my 20s, but I'm not supposed to talk about it anymore. It's, you know. <laughs> You're court ordered to keep mom about that story. I'm, I'm technically not allowed back in Jerusalem is the, the law, but, you know, what can you say? You know, there actually is a, a great two-day party, the, the holiday of Purim, uh, which celebrates the uh, sort of escape from uh, Persia, the story of uh, Haman and Mordechai and Esther. Right. Um, but it's, you're supposed to, it's the one holiday where you are supposed to drink. In fact, it's a mitzvah commandment that you have to get so drunk that you can't tell the difference between Haman, the ultimate bad guy and Mordechai, the ultimate good guy. Um, and so actually it is celebrated on a different date in the ancient walled cities. So Jerusalem does it uh, on a different date than the rest of the world. Uh, they're just days next to each other. And so people will go to Tel Aviv for their first day of Purim and Jerusalem for the second. Now, is that because uh, it's trying to break down a, a bilateral dichotomy between good and evil? You know, that's at least how the rabbis interpret it. Uh, and recognizing, you know, it's also a day that you come in costume. Uh, and so I think the notion becomes that we all have these characters within us and recognizing that which mask we put on is really just that. Right. And, and sitting in judgment on other people is always a bad idea because they might just be wearing the mask that we've so recently discarded. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Hmm. Very good. Um, Okay, so we have Moses coming down the mountain. Going up the mountain. Oh, going up the mountain to, to get these new tablets. And he's got to hew them again. So poor Moses is doing a lot of hewing, hewing. at this point. Yes. Hewing and crying. Um, and we have a, a Midrash, actually, from Rashi, one of our favorites. Uh, it says, hew for yourself. You broke the first ones. You hew others for yourselves. This can be compared to a king who went abroad and left his betrothed with the maidservants. Because of the immoral behavior of the maidservants, she acquired a bad reputation. Her bridesmaids... These are like your friends. I mean, you know, just not, not trustworthy are, people. Yeah, you know, like my, my many, many partying friends. Her bridesmen, the person appointed to defend the bride, should any problems arise, arose and tore up her marriage, marriage contract. He said, if the king decides to kill her, I will say to him, she is not yet your wife. The king investigated and discovered that only the maidservants were guilty of immoral behavior. He therefore became appeased to her. So her bridesmaid said to him, 
write her another marriage contract because the first one was torn so up. So pausing for a second, you know, this, this fits in with that other midrash that we looked at about Moses that says that when he broke the tablets, it was an act of premeditated protection of the Jewish people rather than the sort of momentary uh, uh, act of anger. passion and anger. Yeah, exactly. Uh, which continues to be a read that I, I like. I like this notion that why were the first tablets broken? Because sometimes the law has to be destroyed for the people. Yeah, let's get rid of the contract before they know about it so that they can't be accused of having broken it. Yeah, yeah. So the king replied to the bridesman, you tore it up, you buy yourself another sheet of paper, and I will write to her with personal handwriting. So the king represents the holy one, blessed is he, the maidservants represent the mixed multitude, the bridesman is Moses, and the betrothed of the holy one, blessed is he, is Israel. That is why it says, hew for yourself. So one of the interesting things here is this mixed multitude. Uh, is that a phrase that pops up in... Christian thought at all? No. Oh, not that I know of. Uh, so, so the phrase is in Hebrew is Erev Rav, uh, which actually also can be translated as sort of the, the evening before a rabbi. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's traditional that people who are about to be ordained as rabbis are referred to as Erev Rav because it's, uh, there's something dangerous about it also. Uh, sort of the, uh, as my mother likes to say, she knows enough about computers to be dangerous. Right, right. Uh, so this air of Rav, I, I did some digging uh, on this because it's really an awful concept, I think. Uh, we're told earlier on in Exodus that when the Jewish people fled from slavery and entered into the wilderness, uh, that it was not just the ethnic group of the Jewish people who came, uh, but that there was also a mixed multitude that came along. Uh, and before, when we talked about this, we certainly talked about it as a positive, right? The sense that this is not just an ethnic thing. Right. Um, but what happens is that the heir of Rav, this mixed multitude, uh, within at least a certain train, uh, chain of Jewish tradition becomes the group that is blamed for every problem that, uh, in every generation, the souls of the heir of Rav's, the, uh, uh, souls of this mixed multitude are reincarnated and whichever Jews cause trouble or whichever, uh, uh, Jews are the most problematic in a generation, uh, at least amongst this people who follow this tradition, they are referred to as the heir of Rav, as those people who in some ways aren't really Jewish and don't really belong there. Wow. Um, so who are the people who follow this tradition? Is it a particular sect of Judaism? You know, I would say that you could it be you'll anyone? certainly find this. You, you will not find this kind of tradition in the vast majority of American Jews, the 90% of American Jews who are not Orthodox. Um, mm-hmm. But within the Orthodox, particularly within the ultra-Orthodox traditions, uh, the, the black hatters, uh, which tend to be the most insular of Jews, uh, and thus the the least trusting of outsiders. Uh, this becomes the explanation. In fact, for many of them, uh, they would look at me and say that I am a member of the era of Rav. Really? Yeah, sure. Just because you're a troublemaker? Because I'm a liberal Jew, because I work with the Episcopalians, because, um, I support LGBT equality and so on and so forth. Things like this. 
so even though by your lineage you are actually uh, a priest of the of the temple, you still would be in in there. Yeah. It, it has more to do with action than bloodline in some ways. Uh, today, yes, exactly. The idea being that I have the reincarnated soul of someone who, you know, wasn't a real Jew. Well, one part of me wants to be condemnatory towards that, and another another part of me recognizes sometimes my own behavior when I look at, uh, oh, say, like Gospel of Wealth Christians who are trying to get their followers to give them money so they can buy a jet airliner. You know, I, one part of me wants to say, well, they are not real Christians. Mm. That is not what, yeah, exactly. you know, so exactly. I, th- this instinct to claim someone is the heir of Rav, uh, I know that instinct. I'm not, I'm not free of it. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I think about it in terms of America too. I think we do this, uh, with our values, right? We, we pick and choose what we think of as being real American values and those values, which are outside the tradition. Uh, and I know for me, one of the sort of real radical shifts in my thinking that's happened over the last few years is recognizing that white supremacy is as American as apple pie. And my desire yeah, to look statement. at it and say, no, the real America is the America of immigrants and uh, a shining beacon on the hill of freedom and liberty and justice uh, and to dismiss this other tradition uh, right, we do it with our founders. Think about how we venerate the founders of this country, uh, the same founders who uh, stole land from the native people and who built their wealth on the backs of black and brown bodies. Yes, and in some cases raped those black and yeah. brown bodies. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right, we want to say those things aren't American in the same way that sometimes we want to say these things aren't Jewish or those aren't real Christians. Um, right. Yeah. But the ultra, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I feel like we kind of say that in defense of, of, of idealism, right? Like we align ourselves to a set of ideals and then we look for those who are falling short of those ideals. Um, and, you know, it used to bother me, frankly, when, like, people would, you know, say, oh, I'm a Presbyterian and you're an Episcopalian, so we're almost the same religion. My response would be, no, we are exactly the same religion. <laughs> there is no almost about it. We're all Christians. But actually now I kind of come to think that, like, the gospel of wealth people might be a different religion. Like, there is so much different about it. Um, so much that to me is unrecognizable that I feel more comfortable in saying uh, this might actually be a completely different ideology and approach to God. Uh, but we just haven't named it that way yet because we all point to Jesus. Yeah, you know, I, I one of the questions that I used to get, I used to sit on a lot of panels, uh, uh, reverend, the rabbi, and an imam. Uh, I was a part of a project that went on tour for this. And one of the questions we would get at almost every stop was, do you all believe in the same God? Which, by the way, when we got that question, almost always they really meant, do you believe that the imam has the same God as you? Very few people questioned uh, uh, the rabbi and the the minister. Uh, And interestingly, you know, the, the imam, my friend, would almost always answer, yes, we all believe in the same God. Uh, my friend, the pastor, who's an evangelical megachurch guy, uh, radically would say that, yes, we believe in the same God. Uh, 
which is you know quite unusual for that world. And it was me who would say, no, no, I think we believe in very different gods. Uh, yeah. And I've come to think that more and more, that maybe that's what it really is. We are uh, a people or, or groups bound together by a common text and divided by different gods. Yeah, or maybe we believe in the same God, but so differently that the way we imagine that God is radically different. You know, I, I mean, like I think philosophically, we, we're all willing to say there's just one God, but praying shapes believing. What you do matters. Um, what you think matters. The way you imagine that God matters. So in the end, uh, you could, you know, from a, a thousand foot view, you could say, yes, it's the same God, but the closer mm-hmm. and closer in you get the more it seems. Well, do you think we believe in the same God? You and I? Yeah. Uh, actually, yeah, I think I, I believe, I think you and I believe in the same God much more than I in a, um, gospel of wealth. Huh. Yeah. Okay. In the same God. And probably the um, same is true of me and an Orthodox Jew. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I think, uh, you and I, I mean, not, not to speak for you, but I think we both believe in a fairly humane, compassionate, loving God and we're both willing to to allow a lot of questioning and a lot of confusion into our belief, right? Um and I don't think either you or I believe in a necessarily magical God who's just gonna, you know, make us rich if we send money to some guy. I though I should give you my new address in case any of our listeners want to try that by sending money to me. Oh yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. Okay, well, let's move on since since we've established harmony. Verse 4. And he carved two tablets like the first ones, and Moses rose early in the morning and went up to Mount Sinai as the Lord had charged him. And he took in his hand the two tablets, and the Lord These came down... tablets. Yeah. And the Lord came down the cloud and stationed himself with him there, and he invoked the name of the Lord, and the Lord passed before him, and he called out, The Lord, the Lord, a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in kindness and good faith, keeping kindness for the thousandth generation, bearing crime, trespass, and offense. Yet he does not wholly acquit, reckoning the crime of fathers of sons and sons of sons to the third generation and the fourth. Um, I would so, say that you and I believe in the God of the first clause equally, and we might separate <laughs> in our belief in the second clause. <laughs> you know, so it's interesting. The rabbis do the exact same thing. Uh, uh-huh. This phrase, verse six, basically, and a little bit of verse seven, is maybe the highest piece of sort of pomp and circumstance that exists in the Jewish tradition, the Jewish liturgical tradition. Uh, that on only on our holidays or holy days, I should say, uh, when we go to take the Torah from the ark, everyone stands up. And this is always the sort of uh, pomp and circumstance time. If you've ever seen the ark, it's you know beautifully decorated with all these Torahs inside of it. And each of the Torahs has a gown on it and these uh, rimonim, these sort of silvery uh, bells that go on the top of the staffs and uh, and then it's sort of paraded around the congregation and uh, you come back and you unwrap it in a very particular way. And uh, no one's allowed to be seated until the Torah is rested. Uh, but on the holy days, we open up the ark and before we take the Torah out, everyone turns and faces the ark 
and recites these six uh, or these verses, uh, what we call the 13 attributes of uh, God. Uh, and it's recited three times, actually, which is uh, what's required in Judaism to create a contract. That if you're doing a, a, an oral contract, it has to be stated three different times. And it's just the first half of this phrase. Uh, which I only count nine attributes of God in it. What are the 13? So every word is considered to be an attribute of God, uh, including the name of God. Oh, okay. Uh, so, so maybe I'll go ahead and chant it for us. Yeah, please do. Uh, so you, you got to imagine yourself, the whole congregation, and at the sort of big holidays, you're talking thousands of people there. Uh, everyone standing, everyone facing the ark, everyone chanting these words three times. And there's something sort of drone-like in it you'll hear. Uh, so it goes like this. Adonai, Adonai El-Rachum V'chanun Erech Apayim V'rav Chesed V'emet Noce Chesed L'alafim then you'd repeat that whole phrase two more times. Huh. Um, and just you doing that or no, the whole everyone does it. And there's this sort of, you can't help yourself. There's this sort of rocking back and forth that everyone does and they're all standing and facing towards the ark. And it's, um, you know, I, I find it to be amongst the most spiritually moving experiences that I have in a liturgical year. Um, yeah. And strikingly communal once again. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so I like this notion, right? That, uh, the Lord, the Lord, a God of compassion and grace, slow to anger, bounding in kindness and faithfulness, extending kindness to the thousandth generation, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. I like this notion that we're repeating it three times, like a contract that we're sort of, we have the chutzpah to try to bind God into this. Yeah. To bind the world into this. Like God, you yeah. better be this. Uh, Why three times? So remember that uh, the Jewish people go back so long that we exist really before, uh, before things are written out like they are today. And so if you're going to have a contract, an oral contract, it makes sense that it should be repeated multiple times uh, so that there is absolute clarity there. Uh, yeah. I mean, you know, in Christianity, of course, three is a magic number, as in Schoolhouse Rocks. <laughs> um, but but it, does three have a significance in Judaism beyond just that repetition to reinforce contract? You know, three is considered a complete number. Uh, you know, it's, uh, the first of the prime numbers other than one, if you want to count one. Right. Uh, and actually right. The, the next really significant number for Judaism tends to be seven. So before, before this contract gets laid out this time, we have the nature of God stated. I'm not sure that happened the, the last time. No, no, this is different. Exactly. It's a very different, uh, revelation that we're having here. Right. It's like the, the first revelation, which was still at Mount Sinai, but before the breaking of the tablets, uh, you know, it was a, a series of codifying laws about how to treat your neighbors and your neighbor's animals and the stranger, how to be in community. 
um, how to be moral, ethical, and just. And here it, it goes to the nature of God and it attributes the moral qualities that were placed on humanity before. First, it places them on God. Be compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in kindness and good faith. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, we talked about Maimonides in the last uh, recording, the last podcast. And one of the interesting things is for Maimonides, he says that if these words weren't in the Torah itself, they would amount to idolatry. Huh. Right? Because it's such explain, human, explain. It's such a human conception of God. This is a God who is slow to anger, meaning a God who changes, right? A God who has emotion. This is a God with kindness and faithfulness. Uh, this is a God that is very human. So idolatry because we're fashioning God after our image. Exactly. Exactly. Or our idealized. Yeah. Fundamentally for Maimonides, that is what an idol is. An idol is uh, creating God in our image rather than the reverse. Uh, okay. Yeah. That's why I think, um, you know, to that question of if you and I believe in the same God, I think uh, we both believe in the limits of our understanding of God. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so we're both capable of saying uh, you know, I kind of want to believe this and I kind of half believe this and in my actions, I believe it, but do I ultimately, ultimately, ultimately know that I'm right? No, I don't, I don't ultimately know. That. No. And, you know, and, and this is how I ultimately am a Maimonidean in that I would say that if you know that you're right, you are an idol worshiper. Ah, Yes. Uh, right, it's, yeah. it's certainty is the final. Yeah, item. right. It's the great power of monotheism, which is that if you say that there is one God, then what we know for certain is it's not you. <laughs> Might be me, but not you for sure. It's really you know. Well, I mean, I think we established that a yeah. long time ago. I mean, you uh, are the people who believe that God is a good Jewish boy. I'm just saying, it's not not me. Uh, we do believe that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, okay. Uh, Moses hastened and prostrated himself on the ground and bowed down. And he said, if pray, I've found favor in your eyes, my master, may my master pray, go in our midst for it is a stiff necked people. And you shall forgive our crime and our offense and claim us as yours. And he said, look, I'm about to seal a covenant. Before all your people, I will do wonders that have not been created in all the earth and in all the nations. And all the people in whose midst you are shall see the Lord's doing, for fearsome is that. Which I so I, I actually want to back us up if that's okay. Uh, because yeah. we didn't talk about the second half, and I think we're really going to object to that second half. Yeah. I mean, we have talked about it before. So we're talking now about the, the visiting the iniquity of parents on yes. the children. Uh, that actually has been something we've touched on several times in the podcast. And I think that that might be a place of divergence between you and I, if I remember our past conversations, because I think you hold to the idea that this is actually somewhat true, like psychologically, sociologically true, that people get caught up in these systems of alcohol, alcoholism, abuse, racism, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I, I, I don't, like the idea. It just feels very true to my experience of living as a human in this world. And, you know, the, the notion of the third and perhaps the fourth generation, 
this is considered a full life for Judaism. How do you know if you've had a blessed full life when you get to live to see the third or perhaps the fourth generation, when you get to be a grandparent or perhaps a great grandparent? Uh, And so often that, that the damage and the sins that we bring in this world, whether we like it or not, uh, often are visited upon our children and their children and sometimes even their children. Yeah. And, and, you know, my, my argument is I agree that that is true. I also think there are plenty of people who break that cycle. So I'm not sure it's a necessity uh, that that happened, but um, what you just said actually helps explain a little bit more because of the, the malefactor is still around, still being evil and, and affecting his or her grandchildren, then you could see how that is being visited, right? It's their current action, their current being which is still in effect um which is why some people just simply have to break away from abusive parents or well that that is the uh rabbinic interpretation of this too uh right for the for the rabbis the worst possible sin is idolatry and so their understanding is that the sins of the parents are visited on the third and the fourth generation unless those generations change their ways yeah which i which then i am totally in line with the rabbis um, I also think, so I've been listening to this really interesting podcast about um, this person named Teal Swan, who is a kind of internet guru and uh, does, she's a very dubious figure. Um, in fact, probably kind of horrifically evil. Um, the, po- the podcast is called The Gateway, by the way, and it's put out, I think, by Gizmodo. Um but she is a person who believes in and practices this recovered memory mm. work, um, which was big in the satanic panic of the 1980s. You know, this idea that there are like suppressed memories that can be brought out in uh, through therapy. And the problem with it, of course, is one, it's all BS. Like this has never mm-hmm. been proven to be true. So people will recover memories of, you know, being abused by a satanic cult, but there is no physical evidence. There are no witnesses. There is nothing except their own kind of delusion. Um, and so she is kind of uh, contributing to this. She's uh, advocating for it. She's helping her followers recovering all these memories of abuse, um, which just seems wicked. But more than that, um, I think it points to something that we do in our kind of when we get too victim based in our culture, which is we focus on the bad stuff, right? Like we say, I feel unhappy. I don't know why I feel unhappy. There must be some kind of backstory to my generalized unhappiness. And if there isn't one, I will, I will feel compelled to invent one because I need some explanation for my unhappiness. And, you know, so any psychology that presumes to do that is just really reinforcing the feeling of unhappiness. It's making people more and more desperately unhappy by giving them a reason for it. Uh, whereas the actual helpful therapies are the ones that say, let's name the blessings. Let's concentrate on the good stuff, right? Maybe you feel unhappy because your focus is all on the negative. So let's look for the good. Um, and uh, I guess I'm going into all that to say I, I think right now we have this problematic tendency to do exactly this, right? To visit the crimes of the fathers 
upon sons and the sons of sons. And if there are mm. no crimes to invent them to explain why we feel so bad, uh, instead of saying, let's look for the way we're graced. So, so actually maybe, maybe to go along with that idea, there's a line from the Talmud talking about these tablets that says both the second tablet, uh, these ones that Moses is making right now and the broken tablets get placed in the ark. Right. The good goes along with the bad. And the bad has value still. And the broken has value yeah. still. Yeah, yeah, it does. Right. Because the, the opposite problem would be to claim that there is no bad, to ignore those painful things that have happened to us, or maybe just the painful way we feel, even if nothing bad ever has happened to us, um, and and to denigrate those negative feelings and, and force us to be positive all the time. That is equally problematic, Right. We want both the broken tablets and and the new tablets in our arcs. In our arcs. So like that. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's move on. Uh, I think we're at verse 11. Do you want to turn? Sure. Mark well what I commanded you this day. I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Uh, beware of making a covenant with the inhabitants of the land against which you are advancing, lest they be a snare in your midst. It's an interesting idea, right? Beware yeah. of making a covenant with them. Beware of having peace with them. Right. Right. Okay, so now we're in the problematic part here. Going to drive out all of these people. You're not really supposed to um, be in any kind of relationship with them. And it goes on. You want to go on and then we can talk about how problematic Yeah, though actually is. I think the next two lines are something of a tikkun, of a uh, repair for this. Um, Interesting. No, you must tear down their altars, smash their pillars and cut down their sacred posts for you must not worship any other God because Adonai, whose name is impassioned is an impassioned God. Yeah. My translation says jealous, a jealous. Ah, Okay. Impassioned is better. Uh, Fiery. Yeah. This is a redheaded guy. Oh, so why is that a tikkun? Why is that a repair? So I think if what we're talking about with the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Hittites and so on and so forth, if we are talking about tribes, ethnic groups, uh, and we're talking about not making peace with them, I think that's really problematic for all of the sort of obvious reasons here. But if we understand them not as tribes, but as ideologies, And if we understand that these are ideologies that must be driven out and they are ideologies that cannot be um, negotiated with, it feels very different to me, right? We have to drive out white supremacy in America. We can't make a uh, covenant with white supremacy and find a middle ground. There is no moral middle ground of American white supremacy. There is only the wrongness of it and it must be destroyed. But that's different than talking about destroying white people. Uh, and to me, that's, that becomes the distinction here. Right. Right. I mean, and this goes again to my, uh, gospel of wealth televangelists, right? To my mind, they have made a covenant with an ideology, of wealth and power, which is the antithesis of what Jesus represented. Right now I say that and have to 
also recognize that as a middle-class white American, I too, to some extent, have made that confidence. Yeah. I have not, you know, pulled that cultic pole out of my heart and, and been freed of it. Um, so, you know, always trying to avoid too much judgment. But I, I, but in some ways, you kind of need to do that, right? You need, in order to point out or to see your own behavior for its um, problematic nature, you know, you need to look at the lens of others. And, and often what you find is that what you're casting onto them, the derision and anger and judgment that you're pushing onto them is really what you would direct at yourself if yeah. you're being honest. Yeah. So... Huh. Okay. Well, yeah, I can see how that, I, I agree. That is a repair of what went before. Um, okay. So going on for verse 15, uh, lest you seal a covenant with the inhabitant of the land and they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods and you call you and you eat. Right. So this is the fear that if you make these covenants with their ideologies, you will become that ideology. Yes. Uh, and you take from his daughters for your sons and his daughters whore after their gods and make your sons whore after their gods. Right. No molten God shall you make for yourselves. And then suddenly there's this change, which you're going yeah, to Yeah, we're totally explain. changing subject. Uh, here. The festival of flatbread you shall keep, right? Like that's a very abrupt switch. The festival of flatbread. Um, seven days you shall eat flatbread as I charge you at the fixed time of the month of the new grain. For in the month of the new grain, you came out of Egypt. Okay, what do those two things have to do? You know, I guess the connection that I would make here is we're being warned against adopting the uh, dangerous ideologies of idolatry. And what is the best way to prevent that? I think it's to keep telling our own story. And in particular, the story of having been slaves and having become free. Uh, right. That is right. In fact, I would say that that is the central premise of the Jewish people. Uh, it's our, it's our operating uh, idea. Hopefully it's not wrong, which is that we can take, the oppressions of the past and use them to create an empathy today. Uh, and right. I don't know that it always works. Right. Right. I mean, the, the danger I've been reading a great new book, great, great new book, uh, letters to my Palestinian neighbor by Yossi Klein Halevi, one of my teachers. Uh, but he talks about, you know, Jews are different than Christians and Muslims. Christians and Muslims are universalist religions. Uh, who, who have an image of the whole world becoming at some level like them. Jews are a people. We don't try to convert other people. We don't try to um, make the world like us. We just have this understanding that this is what is right for us and maybe not for you. But the real danger of this is that we can become so focused in on our story that we stop caring about anyone else's story. Uh, and it's a danger that happens, happens all the time. Uh, now the, the hope is that the reverse is true too, that by focusing in on our story of oppression, we learn to have empathy with today's oppressed. Um, well, I, I agree with that danger, but I have to say that Christians are equally prone to sure, it. Sure, we all are. Yeah. Um, 
you know, I mean, like for all the talk about the importance of the Christian family, apparently uh, the the Mexican Christian family doesn't matter when they're being broken up at the border, you know, and you have huge amounts of evangelicals supporting this act, showing their kind of rank hypocrisy. What they mean is a white Christian family, of course. Um, so they've be you know, they're doing that same act of insularity, right? They claim to be a universal religion. But what they really care yeah. about is their tribe. Yeah. Interesting. So, yeah, it is. You know, this is. A, I I am, dear listener, at a moment of deep disgust with my co-religionists. <laughs> so, not not in the Episcopal Church, mind you, because we are all flowers and sunshine. But um, yes. Okay. Well, it goes on. The scripture goes on. It says, Every womb breach is mine, and all your livestock in which you have a male womb breach of ox or sheep, and a womb breach of donkey you shall redeem with a sheep. And if you do not redeem so, it, you shall break uh, it. I love snack. your translation of womb Every- breach here, by the way. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah Robert, Robert okay, there you go. Yeah. yeah. Uh, because that is exactly the notion for Judaism. Uh, and it, this continues. I believe we've talked about this same tradition before. That in Judaism, there is this tradition that the, uh, you, you pay today, it's a really token amount, a little silver coin to a priest when, uh, you have a firstborn son who is the first fruit of the womb. Uh, and so it only is true if it is truly the first breach of the womb. So if, uh, a woman has given birth to a daughter before, it's not considered. Uh, you don't do this ritual if a woman has had a miscarriage before. You don't do this ritual. Uh, if hmm. the child is born hmm. to a C-section, you don't do this ritual. And, well, that's what I was just wondering. That's uh, really and, and this, of course, okay. goes back actually to the tradition that the firstborn or the, the first womb breach was given up as a sacrifice uh, in the ancient Near East. Uh, a human sacrifice. We know that this happened right outside the walls of Jerusalem uh, by the the Canaanites who were living there. Uh, And this becomes replaced in the Jewish tradition with the firstborn uh, or the first fruit of the womb uh, going into temple service. This is the uh, story of uh, um, what's the prophet Samuel uh, and his birth. Uh, And then eventually that is replaced by a tax. Uh, which is what this ritual is today, and this is, uh, and this is in part actually what the story of Abraham and Isaac exactly. is about, right? Like um, that is the story of pe- of the people trying to imitate their neighbors and God clues. Yeah, yeah, right. I mean, I think in its original context, we when we look at the story of the Akedah, the binding of Isaac, oftentimes we look at how uh, morally abysmal it is what Abraham is doing. But I think to the ancient listener of this story, the message was clear, which is that Jews don't do this. Right. Right. And it's a reversal. It's a reversal just like the cross is a reversal in a way, because uh, you could see a listener nodding along and being like, oh, of course, he's taking his son to sacrifice him. That is what people do. And then the kind of incredible surprise they must have felt when that ram appears Mm. in the thorns, right? And they're like, oh, wait a minute. There is a twist here that we just did not see coming, and it's changing our entire worldview. Okay, anyway, so yeah, so womb breach is the right term. 
Um, and, and so that's where we have this redemption of the firstborn sons. And then it goes on. Six days you shall work, and on the seventh day you shall cease. In plow time and harvest you shall cease. And a festival of weeks you shall make for yourself. First fruits of the harvest of wheat, and a festival in gathering at the turn of the year. Three times in the year all your males shall appear in the presence of the master, the Lord God of Israel. Okay, what does that mean? I, so, well, I mean, to zoom out for a moment, I mean, I, th- I think what we're getting here is if we've been told that you're not supposed to follow these foreign commandments and these foreign gods, what does Jewish, uh, what does a Jewish life look like? And in short, I think these verses kind of tell you what a Jewish life looks like. You keep the Sabbath, you keep the festivals, uh, you're a part of a people. Right. So you're not just left with a negation. Don't do this you are actually given uh, uh, something to do in place of what your neighbors are doing. Yeah. Okay. And so if the males appear before the presence of the God of God three times a year, that, I mean, later that would probably mean go to the temple, but at this point it probably means exactly. Uh, go to exactly. The and these, you know, it's not true today, but for most of Jewish history, uh, these three festivals, the festival of Passover, the festival of Shavuot of weeks and the festival of Sukkot, the festival of booths, those were the main holidays. Uh, and ironically, none of them are particularly right. central to at least the way that most Jews understand their holiday schedules today. And I think it's why in the gospel of John, Jesus goes to Jerusalem three times. Hmm. Uh, in the synoptic gospels, he only goes once at the end of his ministry. But in John, he's there three times and it's probably in keeping with the cycle of the Jewish year. Yeah. Right. Right. Okay. Going on from verse 24, for I will dispossess nations before you and I will widen your territory and no man will covet your land. When you go up to appear in the presence of the Lord three times in the year, you shall not slaughter with leavened stuff, the blood of my sacrifice, nor shall the sacrifice of the festival of Passover be left till the morning. The best of the first fruit of your soil you shall bring to the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a kid in its mother's milk. That last phrase is so not in keeping with anything that went before. So it's not in keeping unless you understand this chapter to fundamentally be sort of the Torah in short. Right? It's uh-huh. some level, I, I think that's what this chapter is. Uh, is it is the cliff notes version of everything you need to know in the Torah. Uh, right. You shall not boil a kid in its mother's milk is actually pretty central to Jewish practice. Uh, this is the verse that we get all of the Kashrut laws, the, the Jewish dietary laws from. Um, and actually it's interesting. You shall not boil a kid in its mother's milk. That might itself be a mistranslation. It might be some scholars say, you shall not cook a kid in its mother's fat. Now, the word for mm. fat and milk in Hebrew just changes based on how you uh, put in the vowels, and there are no vowels in the Torah text. Uh, and this seems to probably be a reference to an ancient Canaanite practice where you would take a pregnant uh, calf and cut it open by the stomach and create a fire that you would put it in and you would literally cook these um, baby cow fetuses inside of its mother's fat. Uh, Wow. 
which is pretty gruesome. So again, part of this is defining difference, right? Saying this is how you will be different. Yes. Yes. Um, but this verse actually, you shall not boil a kid in its mother's mouth becomes the reason why, uh, traditionally observant Jews have totally different sets of dishes for when they are eating food that has dairy and for when they are eating food, oh, yeah. excuse me. And for when they are eating food that has, uh, uh, meat and that you should never mix those two in the same meal. Right. At the Hillel house at Kenyon, um, the one set, they had two sets of dishes, one that was like gold plated and one that was not, I mean, not really gold plated, but you know, gold colored for just that purpose, just so they would distinguish and never. Exactly. Exactly. There's actually an old joke that, uh, you know, Moses meets God up on Sinai and God says, you shall not boil a kid in its mother's milk. And uh, Moses says, ah, so what you're really saying here is I shouldn't eat meat and milk together, God. And God says, no, I said, you shall not boil a kid in its mother's milk. And Moses says, ah, what you're really saying is I need two totally separate sets of dishes. goes on and on and on, right? Um, and that's uh-huh. that's the Jewish story right there. Uh, right. Ar- arguing with God about yes. what God really means. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Okay. Verse 27. And this we're going to have a little midrash for. And the Lord said to Moses, write you these words for according to these words, I have sealed a covenant with you and with Israel. So we have this little midrash um, that you are not permitted to write down the oral. Yes, Torah. yes, exactly. That's. And, and since what these midrashim are is the oral Torah. Right. Yeah, exactly. Am I right about that? Then uh, we, we've been just breaking the rules all along. Yeah. So actually, it, it's all connected to this chapter. Uh, there is this notion that the oral Torah, uh, what comes to be written down and called the Talmud, which is huge, you know, the size of an encyclopedia. Uh, that there's this tradition that says that the oral Torah is only given along with the second set of tablets. That it was actually, that was God's tikkun here that God realized that the written document wasn't going to be enough, that there needed to be this oral document, this oral tradition, this um, progressive legal system is another way of saying it. I think uh, that was necessary, Uh, but there's a tradition that says it should never be written down. Actually the the Midrash says, and uh, it's probably a polemic against Christians. It's probably a later Midrash. Uh, but there's a Midrash that says you should never write the oral Torah down because once you write it down, someone else could pick it up and claim that it's theirs, just like happened with the Bible is the uh, unspoken uh-huh. piece here, I think. Um, yeah. And yet what happens is after the destruction of Jerusalem and of the temple in 70 CE, there is this very real chance that the oral tradition is going to be totally lost, that this chain of transmission uh, which the rabbis say goes back to Moses, to Aaron, uh, excuse me, Moses, to Joshua, uh, to the prophets, to the elders, so on and so forth, uh, that it's going to be destroyed. And so a man named Yehuda Hanasi, Judah the Prince, gathers all of the greatest rabbinic minds of his generation and writes down the oral Torah. And in doing so, breaks the law of the oral Torah. Yeah, well, uh, and and people are just okay with this from that point. Yeah, 
Yeah, right. I mean, it goes along with this tradition of sometimes you have to break it to save it. Right. Right. Like the, like the, like the tablets really. So kind of the, the broken, yeah, the broken, uh, oral Torah is sitting right alongside the oral Torah all the time. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, what becomes interesting about this then is that the oral Torah that's written down is really a cacophony of different voices and it's not one statement. Uh, that, you know, they, they ask a question, they give four answers and they move on. And it's not an attempt to pick one of these four as being the answer. It's really to set the boundaries of Jewish discussion and Jewish thought, not to give the answers. Right. So it allows for much more oral Torah to come because people can, yeah, really sort of demands and yeah, requires it. Yeah. Right. That is awesome. Well, if you're going to break the rules and set down the oral Torah, yeah. that is the way to do it. Way to go, Judah <laughs> the Prince. That guy knew what he was doing. <laughs> uh, okay. Let's finish this baby up. So verse 28, and Moses was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. Bread he did not eat, nor water did he drink. And he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the ten words, and it happened when Moses came down from Mount Sinai that the two tablets of the covenant in Moses' hand when he came down from the mountain, that Moses did not know that the skin of his face had glowed when he spoke with God. And Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, and look, the skin of his face glowed, and they were afraid to come near him. And Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the chiefs in the community came back to him, and Moses spoke to them. And afterward, all the Israelites drew near, and he charged them with what the Lord had spoken with him on Mount Sinai. And Moses finished speaking with them, and he put a veil on his face. And when Moses came before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out, and he would come out and speak to the Israelites at which he had been charged. And the Israelites would see Moses' face, that the skin of Moses' face glowed, and Moses would put the veil back on his face until he came to speak with him. So, uh, one of the things I love about the story, of course, is that there is a mistranslation by St. Jerome, uh, who is one of my least favorite early Christian saints, mostly because he was a jerk, even though he did tame a lion. Um, and he mistranslated this light glowing from Moses's face as yeah. horns. He said that there was horns on Moses's face. And that, dear listener, is why if you go into a Christian church and see a stained glass window with Moses, chances are he has two broken off horns on his head, just like Hellboy. And uh, that is why, because St. Jerome... And actually this mistranslation, the word in Hebrew is the same, which is where you get the mistranslation from Karen. Uh, this becomes an excuse for thousands of years of anti-Semitism. Uh, that because Moses had yeah, horns like the devil. Yeah. And I, you know, I, most Jews that I know, particularly Jews who are 50 or older, I would say in the United States have had an experience where someone has asked to see their horns or not believed that they were really Jews because they didn't have horns. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I've had it happen to me. Uh, it's, you know, uh, in most of the time today in the United States, there's something, you know, it's clearly anti-Semitic, but there, there's something somewhat at least benevolent about it. But for thousands of years, this was 
an excuse for Jews being considered devils and Jews not being uh, worthy of human rights. Yeah. Um, huge levels of ignorance. It reminds me of a, I, I had a parishioner who um, had as a second marriage in his old age, after his first wife had died, he married a Jewish woman named Ruth. And after he died, I would go and visit Ruth. And uh, Ruth told me once that she used to be invited to the school district. This was in rural Ohio uh, to talk about Judaism. And one of the questions the children asked was whether she lived in a tent. <laughs> <laughs> which I still find just amazing to this day. I've right? never gotten that knew, one, but that's good. Okay. Yeah. They knew so little bit about Judaism that they just assumed that all Jews were just wandering in the desert in tents still. Yeah. yeah. Um, kind of incredible. You know, one of the ones that I get not infrequently is uh, people surprised that there are still Jews. Really? Yeah. yeah. Where who who asked this question? Where does this come from? You know, there's a sense that Jews are something of the past and of history, right? Because for a lot of kids in the United States who maybe aren't, um, you know, as sophisticated, uh, what ends up happening is they only encounter Jews as being something like bad guys in their church stories and victims of the Holocaust. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's that's interesting. That might account for um, – I've noticed when I brought the Holocaust up in the midst of this podcast, not with you necessarily, but with some of their guests, uh, some of our guests, there's been a, a kind of, um, I don't know, a desire not to make that the story, like, right? Like uh, we don't, you know, we don't really want to define ourselves by that or think of ourselves in that way, which now I think about it is totally understandable. Who who would? Um but I think maybe that's part of it, right? This idea that like metaphorically in some people's minds, Jews have been wiped out by the yeah. Holocaust. Yeah. I, you know, the other piece that I would say for many Jews, particularly younger Jews, Jews of my generation uh, and younger, it's also that for about two generations, Judaism in some ways was replaced with Holocaustism and Israelism. Hmm. I mean, I, I, I think for really understandable reasons, right? I mean, a third of all the Jews living in the world were murdered 70 years ago in white Christian Europe. Right. And that's a trauma that you can't get past quickly. Right. Uh, nor, nor should, should you. you. Really? Uh, yeah. But for American Jews who oftentimes were much more assimilated who were being embraced really for the first time in our history as insiders, which in the United States meant white people. Um, really what happened is that became what Jewish identity was about, was about yeah. uh, connecting to the horror of the Holocaust and the impossibility of living in a world without anti-Semitism mm -hmm. uh, and yeah. the redemptive narrative of Israel. And those two things went along with each other because the same Jews whose identities are so connected to the Holocaust often are the same people who have trouble ever seeing Israel uh, doing wrong uh, mm -hmm. because Israel had to be redemptive. It was the only thing that can make sense. The only thing the that can make sense to the Holocaust. I Actually, the, the Israeli Holocaust Museum, Yad Vashem, uh, ends, it always bothers me. 
it ends with this gorgeous lookout over modern Jerusalem. And it's not a lookout over ancient Jerusalem. Hmm. And the message there always bothered me because there's not, I don't believe in redemption in that sense. Uh, right. It, it doesn't matter how amazing and transformative it is. The Jews have once again returned to being a free people in our own land. It's not redemptive for the 6 million people, the 1 million children who were murdered. And the idea that it is redemptive, I find kind of gross. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's, so are you and, and your, um, and people of your generation in Judaism engaged in the same kind of project that I and people of my generation are, which is, uh, in Christianity, which is attempting to, to reimagine our religion. Yeah, I think that's, that's true. Absolutely. Um, yeah. I mean, we live in a religion optional age. We live in a tribe optional age, right? Right. For, for the first time in place, I should say this is only true in the United States. It's not even a little bit true in Europe. But American Jews, particularly Ashkenazi American Jews, uh, Jews who look white, mm-hmm. can choose to not be Jews. Right. Uh, and for almost all of Jewish history, being Jewish was much more like... Um, much more like what Americans have done to people of color, which is that definitionally you are an outsider. Right. Right. Well, we are going to have to get more into this question of identity because I am fascinated by it in America right now. You know, I was at a party last night where a friend was talking about taking her daughter to a K-pop convention, uh, you know, K-pop being Korean pop. Of course these boy bands from Korea and this is a community, right? Like you can choose your own community, your own identity to some extent in America. Um, and yet at the same time, there are these overarching identities, which we don't even think about such as whiteness, for instance. Um, so these are, these are really important questions, but we are over an hour, so we can't address them now. We'll just have to put a pin into that. Another day. For another day. All right, dear listeners. Um, Daniel, do you have any shameless plugs you want to make before we finish? Do I have any shameless plugs? No, other than I'll give another plug for this book I've been reading uh, or read, which really I, I would encourage anyone who is interested in understanding how Jews understand ourselves and how we in particular understand um, the news aid of Israel to read Yossi Klein-Levy's new book, Letters to My Palestinian Neighbor. Uh, really incredible. That sounds uh, I've actually been a part of an online uh, book discussion group with Presbyterian ministers on this. That's been fascinating. Cool. Um, uh, I have no plugs. I am plug free this week. Um, life is is mellow here in Central Ohio. Good. You have been listening to Lost in the Wilderness, a priest and a rabbi explore Exodus, which has been brought to you by the very kind sponsorship of Christchurch Cathedral and the Diocese of Southern Ohio. Our theme music is from Brianna Kelly from her album All Things Are Being Made New. Uh, I'm Carl Stevens. And I'm Daniel Bogart. And we are saying shalom, my friend.